Hello, and welcome to a roundtable discussion on the Topic of Page podcast. My name is John Mayer. In this episode, I'm joined by guests for a lively conversation on a topic we hope you'll find interesting. So, in this episode, we're going to be talking about the first season of Continuum, That is a sci-fi show about time travel, really. It started, I believe, on the Canadian Showcase Network, if I'm correct. It did, and if I lived in Canada, I think based on looking at the Showcase website, that would be my favorite Canadian TV channel. It it is funny how many uh, shows that we've heard about and have liked uh, have originated from there. This also then showed up on the Sci-Fi Channel later. It had a first season of 10 episodes, which is going to be what we're going to be talking about here. And we're going to do this in kind of two parts. The first part of this episode, we're going to try to have spoiler-free. And then we're going to kind of draw a line in the sand and say, hey, if you haven't watched it and you want to, stop now, go watch it, and come back. Definitely, because it's re-airing on June 7th as a marathon of all 10 episodes on Sci-Fi before they start up the second season. Right. But we'll draw that line in the sand of spoiler-free and then spoiler-filled, and then we'll try to let you know. Because this is one that uh, Kay and I just uh, marathoned through. We watched uh, four episodes last night and the other six today. And the the writing on this show, I think, is, is really well done. It's fantastic, and having watched the episodes a week at a time back in January when Sci-Fi first aired it, you know, you pick up a lot of the breadcrumbs that they leave out for you, but then when you watch in the marathon of four episodes last night and six today, you just see it all stacking up and building this great structure, and you go, oh wait, they set that up, oh wait, that was there just waiting for you, oh wait, they planned all of this ahead. Well, they've got the one guy, um, what was his name again, the, the creator of the show? Simon Barry. Simon Barry. He's the creator of the show, and he's got writing credits in IMDb for all of the episodes, although there are other people who've actually written some of the episodes. He's clearly very involved, um, and this was kind of his baby and stuff. What I'm liking is there are some shows that are episodic. Every episode is more or less done in one. There's some carryover of whatnot, but it's, it's meant to be just come for a week, watch the episode, you're good. There are other shows that are serial narrative where it's watch for the season, see how it builds and stuff. And this, I think, does a really good job of walking the line between those. There is very clearly a very strong serial narrative going on here, a very big picture thing that they're building and and constructing and playing with and pays off, I think, over the course of, not even just the course of the seasons, but, you know, just throughout. But also just on an episode-by-episode basis... I think you get a beginning, a middle, and end of a story that plays into the bigger story. I would totally agree. I mean, on the one hand, I would refer to season one as a novel. And I was so satisfied with everything that was in it that I want to pick up that follow-up novel of season two and see where they go. But as a standalone novel, it was spectacular. But it was also one where... 
at the end of each chapter in the novel, I felt okay setting the book down for the night, not like the writers had just tricked me into having to turn the page to start the next chapter. Well, I guess for me, I would say it was almost ten short stories that built up to a novel. They yes. were not disconnected. They were clearly one after another and had strong threads. But it was not one of those where I felt each episode I only got a chapter of a story. Exactly. I would totally agree with that. This is one where the time travel aspects of it I thought they did a great job with. By and large, the, the special effects I thought were very well done. There are one or two places, as with any show, where it's like, maybe they could have done that a little better, whatever. It's going to happen, but in ten episodes, if there's only one place where you have that feeling, not one place per episode, but one across the ten, that's phenomenal. Well, and particularly for this kind of a show, because like many shows these days post-Lost, they do kind of what happens on Arrow, where they flash back to the island. Here, some of the story takes, most of the story takes place present day, but it's a time travel one. So where the, the travelers originated from in the future... We flash back to, or flash forward to, depending if you're looking at the perspective of linear time or the character's time, to, to see how kind of the, the lead character got to where she is today. I would definitely say this is a story about the lead character. All of the other characters feel secondary in terms of how much we find out about and how much backstory we're given. We're given little details by comparison to how much we feel we get about her, but through her we meet all of them, and through her we get to know them, and in that respect I actually felt it was a bit more interesting to get to know the others, to see them through her eyes. Well, the, the lead character of uh, uh, Kira Cameron, um, we see the story, like you said, from her side of things, but not exclusively from her perspective, because there are a couple of times in any story where even if you've got that strong lead character, you need to see what be it the bad guys or the victims or other th characters are doing to give context to that. Whereas there, I think, have been some shows where you virtually never leave the lead character. Very again, true. Different storytelling style, and this one I thought worked very well. The cast here, I think, is very strong. It's an incredible ensemble cast, and I just, I was sitting there watching it, and the first time I'm like, wait a sec, I'm going to have to ask John, because I actually watched two episodes, and then I was like, wait, why the heck don't I have John watching this? And John says, well, maybe. I forced him to watch it, and it's, okay, we'll watch this every week now together, which, on the one hand, that's a sign of a great show, but... I made him rewatch the pilot after that so I could be saying, okay, I know where I know Tony Amendola from. Well, that one I think we would have gotten from Stargate SG-1, and we've met him at Comic-Con. Wonderful guy. He's a fantastic guy. He played Braytac, and my own little personal recollection of him, when he found out I was hiding gluten-free donuts at a booth because I'd recently been di diagnosed with celiac disease, he not only asked if he could sample one, because he was curious about gluten-free and how it tasted, he read the ingredients on it and told me that it was probably one of the healthier junk foods I could have, but there was one ingredient I should try and avoid, and if I could look for an alternate product, it would be healthier <laughs> for me. And I remember thinking, what a wonderfully kind guy, but also what an actor to be noticing what's healthy even in your junk food and what isn't. He, he struck me as a very uh, detail-oriented guy, a very nice guy, and of course, just I've, I've loved the work he's done. He was in uh, 
Uh, I think the first Zorro film, obviously uh, uh, one of the recurring characters, uh, Braytac, like you said, on Stargate SG-1. He shows up here, not in all of the episodes, but the majority of them uh, for the first season, and uh, plays a pivotal role. Other uh, character or actors and stuff we've got, the uh, lead, her, um, I'm blanking on the name. The, oh, Rachel Nichols. Rachel Nichols, yeah, Kara. I was going to say the lead Kara. character, yeah playing Kira Cameron. She was in a season of Alias, and she was also in the G.I. Joe, uh, at least the first G.I. Joe film. I haven't seen the second one yet, so I don't know. We've got Lexa Doig, who was on Andromeda. She's also been on Stargate SG-1. She was also in Tech War. We've got uh, the guy who plays the detective on Arrow. Is Roger showing, Cross. Roger Cross is showing up here as a uh, one of the members of Liberate, which are the terrorists from the future that come back that the Protector, uh, Kara Cameron, is, is chasing. There are a few other actors uh, here and there that we've we've seen before. It's got a, uh, well, Victor Webster, uh, who plays her, Kara uh, Cameron's modern-day cop partner. He was in uh, Mutant X and stuff. So there are a lot of actors and actresses that I think would be familiar to, you know, comic book fans, sci-fi fans, just from related genre shows. Well, and they are a very talented, very strong cast, and you put them all together in a scene, and they have such wonderful chemistry playing off each other, and there are moments where they're supposed to be happy and having fun, and you see an exchange of smiles, and you can just tell they're loving these characters. And as a viewer, I just find it so much fun to watch a cast that's having that much fun in their characters. What I think is impressive about this is if you're a fan of just a police procedural cop show, there's a very strong aspect of that here that I think people could be happy with. If you want a time travel saga and intrigue and stuff, there's definitely that to be had. There are deeper layers here. And it's something that I think people could come at it from multiple angles and enjoy it and hopefully get all those different layers well, out of it. The police aspect is not dependent, if you will, on the time travel aspect. So if you have a friend or family member who says, I don't watch time travel shows, you don't have to really care about the time travel part to watch this because the only way in which it's relevant to them is doing the right thing in the present because that's what's good for tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Well, and there's also what I would say is the equivalent of the, the spy genre sort of a thing, because there are different factions here, secrets are being kept, there's the intrigue and all of that going on. So, again, I, I've been very impressed with this. The second season's going to be starting up soon. I definitely think it's worth people checking out. Well, and the advice that I've given to people who have not seen it yet, and one person recently told me I was you know spot on thanks for warning them about this when you watch in the pilot i mean as john said the premise is a cop and some criminals get sent back in time pay close attention to everything that happens in the minutes that lead up to fulfilling that premise if you will it's it's one of those shows that has not just a surface level but it, it kind of not explicitly raises questions, but there are implied questions that a, a viewer paying attention will pick up on and say, hey, wait a sec, what about? And they give you stuff to, to speculate on, stuff to think about, 
In some cases, I think they give some answers. Other cases, not yet. Again, we're only 10 episodes in. If you're multitasking and looking down, you might miss a look, a shifting of positions, something that can hold some meaning later or prompt some of these questions. And several times I've just had fun at the end of an episode asking John, does this mean that? Does this mean the other thing? Does this open this possibility or this door? Mm -hmm. But if you hadn't had your eyes glued to the screen, if you'd been relying on the dialogue, you wouldn't have caught that possibility. There are a lot of, of sci-fi shows over the years that I've, I've loved. And as much as I love Next Generation of, of Star Trek, there was an aspect to the majority of those episodes that would end on a very, and we're done, note. And you could almost shuffle some of those episodes around. Granted, there was character growth and stuff like that. But it's the other end of the spectrum here where it's not like they're ending on a cliffhanger moment or a major revelation or something like that. But there is some stuff that they've sprinkled out that, again, you can stop and think about and say, well, what about? And I really like that aspect of, of the show, as I've said a few times, I guess. Well, I've had so much fun waiting for season two, and normally I hate a hiatus between seasons. I want the next one to start up. I hate waiting a year for the next novel to come out after <laughs> the previous one. But in this case, I've just had so much fun thinking back on it and saying, oh, but wait, could this be that or could this be this? And in the final few seconds of the 10th episode, something is said that just gives you another whole slew of things to think about. And it's, it wasn't a cliffhanger, per right. se. It was a door opening. I would equate that to the first season of Primeval. Uh, over in the UK, six episodes, another time travel one. That show was more a what if you had kind of gateways through time and toss in the Jurassic Park kind of concept of, of you know, you've got dinosaurs walking through them to the present day. So very different take on time travel. But it also, you know, with, with that British show, British shows tend to have, again, those arcs per season and very short, or series as they call them, very short series, in that case six uh, episodes, and what they did at the end of that six made me, it's like, wow, I, I didn't think they were going to go there. They revealed something. It, it changed the game for the next season. And the way this one ended, I thought, again, every episode had payoff, felt self-contained. At the end of the ten, it felt like that was a, a logical place to kind of stop the season and sets up the next season potentially to go either in the exact same direction further, but raises some stakes, changes some things, some dynamics. And I'm very curious where they're going to go. Now, of course, I think they've already aired the first five of those over in Canada. Yes, there are times when I wish, you know, well, I wish I was still trading videotapes with a certain friend up in Canada, which we used to do on a regular basis when he was getting shows I wasn't and vice versa. Uh, and, you know, I am frustrated no end that there are certain aspects of the showcase.ca website that we can and cannot get to um, because you can see that webcomics were done up in Canada for this show but you can't see the webcomics because yeah. it's blocked to American IP addresses and things like that and I do wonder what did they have in those webcomics was it 
in continuity with what we've just seen or apart from and things like that. Do we want to start talking spoilers at this point? All right, so at this point, if you have not uh, watched the stuff and you don't want spoilers, good time to kind of stop. Otherwise, we're going to start talking specifics. Um, and I think the the biggest specific to kind of discuss is something that they toss out there from the first episode, kicks into, I think, uh, another level with the 10th episode. The whole concept here is, again, you've got eight terrorists, uh, part of the Liberate movement. And I have to say, I made John go back and count terrorists with me when they circled up in the execution chamber, because I have to wonder, were the writers just having fun and messing with my mind? Eight terrorists were the leaders of Liberate. Well, they alternate between Liberate the number and Liberate the name, um, but they 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 have the eight terrorists, they're gathered for the execution, because apparently they do group executions. Yes, yes. But it was the first time they had in, I think, 40 years. So, I mean, throw a big party for that, I guess. They do that. The uh, lead character of... of uh, blanket on Kira. The Kira, thank you, sorry. Is one of the protectors, one of the cops, essentially. And at this point, the world is controlled by corporations. She gets reassigned to be in the room with the terrorists... Uh, another guard slips them the time travel device pieces. They assemble it, throw it into whatever the energy thing that's going to incinerate them is. Now, the way I saw it, which I find modern, you know, future technology is going to be amazing. Each of the eight people is handed one of the eight pieces, and they throw it into the beam, and it assembles itself. Yeah, these things are are wedges of a sphere. And yeah. it assembles itself. She sees what's going on. She dives in. And the whole question is, was she reassigned on purpose to, to go back in time? If so, by whom and why? And in the viewing area, because all good executions have a viewing area behind glass, is her husband with older Alec. And the moment he sees Kira in there, he says, oh, heck no. Well, And older Alec, and we'll explain who Alec is in just a sec here, Basically, you know, n nods to the guy who he's saying, hey, pull her out of there. The husband is saying, no, no, she's got to be in there. He's got to be out of here. And it comes down to why was the husband freaking out that she was in there? Did he know something? Older Alec clearly knowing something and pulling some of the strings here. Now, Alec, uh, we're referring to him as older Alec, which of course implies a younger Alec. When uh, Kira gets into the modern day, she's got her high-tech, you know, police suit on. Because um, everything's very tech-driven in the future for, for the cops. Her clothing has a built-in iPad, a built-in iPod. I mean, it's a built-in everything piece of clothing. I aspire to have a CPS suit. It's everything you would have expected a uh, Starfleet outfit to have in Star Trek. Yes, it is. And it, it, they sell the concept of the tech fairly well. But all of this is cutting-edge technology or whatever that had to get developed at some point. And sure enough... Alec, uh, from, you know, the, the, the future, he's 17-ish, somewhere in there, uh, still living at home and stuff. He, he's a, a young genius who's just starting on this path to become kind of a Bill Gates kind of, you know, tech billionaire or whatever in the future. He's playing around with this, this new communication protocol he's devised and stuff, which taps into the suit, because, of course, for that, it's standard tech. You know, it's like a developing the internet protocol and stuff and finding a hacker already there talking to you yeah you, you've developed you know like 
Skype or something and somebody's already calling you and it's like, wait, I just, just invented this. This is impossible. So there's some fun aspects of that. But it comes down to, again, who knew what, when, what are the motivations? And they play around with what are the consequences of the time travel. So you've got the, the eight terrorists and stuff. Uh, Kagami uh, being the lead, that's the one played by... Um, Tony Amendola, and he, he pulls off the charisma, he pulls off the wisdom of the aged elder leader. He's the cult leader and, the, to a certain extent, the voice of the movement early on. And his portrayal in that opening scene, he pulls you into that world in those first it's probably 30 seconds and you know this is not here and now this is then and there well and i think opening the show uh the first episode with his uh, uh manif- his, his manifesto really uh, to the public as he's blowing up the the congress of corporations was was very effectively done but it's interesting because some of the other terrorists are ex-soldiers and and military types one of them is essentially a con man, who we later learn is not uh, really a believer in their cause so much as just kind of sucked into this. He's the brother of a believer, someone who was in the wrong place at the wrong time and got arrested because he was holding the wrong item. And I pointed out to John as we were rewatching that episode today, Kira was the leader of the team that arrested him. And if you watched how the arrest scene went down, I really think that Kellogg... Who is this con artist? This con artist. I think he actually respects and is grateful to Kira for her actions during the moment of arrest. Let's let's talk about the arrest. They find out there's these terrorists out there. We're in the future. They, They apparently don't have squad cars. They fly around in essentially somewhat like rocket helicopter type things. They, they get clearance to, to go in after this terrorist. They unleash a, a barrage of missiles against the building, blow half the building away, it seems like, killing Kellogg's, uh, Matthew Kellogg's sister, because she's getting crushed by this big pillar or whatever. And, and, and that's the pivotal thing. She's not killed instantly. She's lying on the ground, being crushed, and it's clearly a matter of seconds. About the only thing we don't see is Kira using her HUD for the medical diagnosis. Yes, and she she holds back the team long enough for Kellogg to have a moment with, you know, his sister as she dies and stuff, and, and that builds a little bit of a bond between the characters. Now, going back to the, the HUD, the heads-up display, again, this is not part of her suit, but she's also got an implant with a chip which records her memories, which allows young Alec, on the other end of the, the, the tech broadcast and stuff, to monitor her every move, to be the voice in her head, to be her like you were saying earlier this afternoon, her life coach in the 21st century. I found it priceless when he was life coaching her through everyday moments because the writers had to take a moment, take a step back and recognize there are aspects of our everyday lives that we take for granted, like rock, paper, scissors, that someone from 65 years from now might not know. Yeah. Because if you think about it, 65 years ago would have been late 1940s, 1948-ish. And I don't know what would be part of everyday life that people would just take for granted the way we take for granted cell phones, um, 
the internet. Uh, I'm Putting on the hoops and a poodle skirt. Exactly. Those sorts of things. You know, the, the soda shop, what are the terminologies for just, hey, I'd like breakfast. You know, how do you order things, whatever. It may not be radically different, but there would be a couple of idioms and so forth that would just really baffle some people, I think. That's one of the details of the Kellogg character I love. His appreciation of the fresh fruit and the food that is still around. And through that, they tell us about the future. Yes. They use a lot of just little subtle, I've never seen a horse before, to tell us about the future. There are a couple of, it doesn't seem forced when they do those sorts of things. And that's something where I'm really impressed by the economy of writing because few scenes are just there for a purpose. They usually not only are moving the the police case they're solving or, or working on, but some aspect of the character relationships, character history, or something else to to grow the show and the um the 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 little universe and stuff they're telling. Well, John and I both have college degrees in radio, television, film, and my first job out of college was actually working on the set of a television show. So when I basically pleaded with him, could we do this podcast? Could we try and encourage people to watch Continuum? I sat down with the pilot episode, which I had recorded, and I tossed it into a video editing program, and I said, okay, if I were going to whittle this down to just the critical moments to help someone understand the premise of the show and take out the things that, yes, they're the plot of the pilot, but they're not the what you have to know to get the series. Yeah. I still had 10 minutes when I was done editing, over 10 minutes. It was uh, 10.45. Well, it's interesting because I think there are a lot of shows out there that have arcs, the big picture stuff, and then they have kind of the regular episodes. And if you were to take some of those and whittle it down to the, I just want to follow the arc, not the, they're a police detective, so we've, they've got to solve cases every week. Just get rid of the, the fluff, if you will, and boil it down. There's some where it would shrink down massively and compress very tight. There are others, and I think this is one of them, where there were certain kind of, uh, I don't want to say of the moment type things. That I didn't feel they ever had filler episodes here, and even the stuff that's just, well, they got to solve a case didn't feel like filler. Well, I would say no filler episodes, and the cases that don't feel specifically gang-related and don't feel specifically liberate-driven, at the end you find out they had a finger in that pie. But even without that aspect, because there was the one with the politician and, and the labor union and stuff, I felt that what they were doing over the course of it was such important character growth for the Victor Webster character. Uh, Carlos, the the modern-day cop partner, and the relationship between the two... Yes. ...that it didn't feel like filler, whereas... It was great on that respect. It was great in terms of the gang had a finger in the pie, and it was great pointing out that once someone becomes head of the biggest unions in the country, it opens them up to this, that, and the other. It shows the bigger game that Kagami was playing at that point. Yes, and more than once they had chess boards that Kagami was sitting at while he was talking to people. And Kagami really is a chess player in this show. Mm -hmm. Well, and there was a couple of times where they held essentially almost a public execution for a a corporate CEO who'd been pillaging the, uh, the 
uh, pension funds. Pension funds. Thank you. And Kira basically, you know, gets her to confess on the website that Kagami has set up for her execution, knowing that they're not going to kill her if she actually confesses. That's what he was after. And he had a look of kind of respect of, you see the level I'm playing at, you get it. You are a worthy foe. Well, and on an intellectual level, there's, there's again, a depth here to these things. Uh, a good example, a good counterexample, I should say, is uh, The Mentalist. We watch that show. I, yeah. We really enjoy that. Basic premise there is you've got a guy who'd been a, posing as a psychic, basically ticks off a serial killer. Serial killer kills his wife and daughter, and he joins the uh, California Bureau of Investigation to go chase this guy down. And there are episodes throughout the series that are related to Red John, the serial killer. There are a lot of other episodes which are very entertaining in their own right, but if you were to boil down the arc stuff, would would not be part of it. Yes. And would shrink down. Again, here, with, with what they're doing with Continuum, everything seems to be orbiting around the central arc, the central question of will she be able to get back, can time change, who motivated this, what are the repercussions of all the events, and all of it around the central premise that I never feel that they are, again, filling time or, or veering away well, from that. And it's getting more and more intriguing and more and more interesting as they layer question upon question, at least in my mind, to where I'll sit there at the end of an episode and say, oh, okay, John, I just figured out why they don't have a picture to put up of Matthew Kellogg on the board. And it took me watching through the show twice to realize he didn't go when they went to the power plant. And that's where the photos came from. Off the surveillance stuff of, of the previous episode that the cops had. And what I like is they're treating the viewers with respect to be able to pick that up and not have to spell out everything. There are a couple of things here and there um, that I thought were, I don't want to say exposition, but like when, in the, when we get a flashback to the future when she's first becoming a protector, it's her first day on the job, and we get the, here's your gun, here's your multi-tool, here's your, your you know, contact lens implants or, you know, whatever they are for the, the, the heads-up display and all of that. There was a little, you know, set-up aspect to that, but it was done in a fairly, you know, I thought fun, entertaining, and quick manner. Um, and there have been a few things like the uh, injection she did in the first or second episode that kind of fade away and get dropped. That was in the pilot, and the more I think back to it, it was right after the crash through the bridge, and I'm wondering if that was supposed to be a pain reliever for an injured shoulder. The way she did it at the time, it looked like a steroid injection or something, which could be a pain reliever. It was puzzling, but it was probably, again, part of the multi-tool, which we had seen also in the pilot they could use to go tag people that pays off later when she tags Kellogg. And yes. there, there are certain things where I have to imagine the writing team really planned out this first uh, season pretty well because stuff is set up gracefully and, and subtly that, that pays off throughout the season. Kellogg buying a yacht because, oh, look at this nice yacht. And yeah, that's kind of the yuppie thing to do, but the yacht pays off time and again. And it doesn't feel like he went and bought a yacht because they needed a character to have a boat. It was unclear why he bought the yacht, but I think with his character having that flexible exit, you know, made sense. And there are a couple of things, can she trust him, can she not? The dynamic between 
Kellogg and Kira, I think is a lot of fun. The dynamic they've sort of set up between him and Carlos, they've barely had any screen time together. And, you know, there's this mythical section six that Kira is using as kind of a, this is why she can be with the the local uh, Vancouver cops. And he kind of plays along and, and now Carlos thinks he's part of that. And at the time they set up section six, there were only six living Liberate members that we knew of in the present because Kagami hadn't arrived yet. Again, I wondered, were they just messing with my mind? Did Section 6 really exist? Were the writers just having fun? You know, it's interesting because one of the other things we've noticed is they've got this one plaza with a uh, piece of abstract art that originally looks like an 8, as of the end of the season, uh, looks like a 6. And there are other places where in the backgrounds you sometimes see the numbers and things like that. There's an aspect of the set decoration, particularly with, um, uh, who was the guy in the last episode? Jason, thank you. Uh, I'm really bad with the character names on some of this, I apologize for that. But there's some of the stuff he's got in his little, you know, workshop or whatever that, you know, they've got wires in a eight kind of a pattern. There are other places where he's clearly drawn the eight. You know, he's a little crazy and obsessed. But he also opened the door because he was from the future, or at least claimed. Not, I, I don't want to say claims to be. He's from the future. I don't have any doubt about that. But it sets the scene up for other people having been from the future. And well, and actually, it makes sense because Kagami shows up second or third episode, a couple episodes in. And uh, Lucas is the, the terrorist, you know, uh, hacker, if you will. His theory was, you know, proximity. Closer you are, the further back you didn't get sent, I guess. The, the, the less travel time you made. Well, and Kira seemed to jump in near Kagami. Maybe she pulled him back and kind of stepped into his place, trying to get at what he was throwing. And that could be, but the, the point is... If you were a few feet further back from the time travel device, it didn't send you the full 65 years, but 64 years and change. But then Jason got thrown to, what did he say, 1990-something? 1995 or something like that, yeah. And mentions others. So it could be in the second season, we've got more players uh, from the future. Now, the other possibility is, you know, were there other executions done before or after these eight that could have sent people back or something? Again, there's there's tons to speculate on. There were a couple of places where some of the future scenes when they get the cityscape, it's obviously CG. I mean, I expect that. It's not bad CG, but it's one of those where you think, is, is it, you know, uh, picture perfect? Nah, not quite. But one of the scenes I love, Kagami, uh, again, the, the leader of the, the group, who's, you know, Tony Amidalis, he's playing a character, 64 and change years old. He gets back to his childhood neighborhood. And mm. is seeing it in the, the, the present day, and he's looking around, and as he's looking around, there's kind of the, uh, the CG effect of it getting built up to how it looks in the future. To, and it was a very fun juxtaposition of the here and the now and the then and the will be. Yeah, it was, it may not have been pristine effects, but it was so beautifully done that it felt like pristine effects because it just sucked you in. It was blatant effects because of the the, the animation aspect of it, but I thought it was actually some of the better effects they did, particularly compared to some of the future city effects, where all of that was whole cloth and just yes. for a flyover scene or something. Yes. Well, and that one ended, as I recall, with a CPS uh, missile launching copter flying through, and as he finishes turning, 
he sees a cop down on the ground starting to stroll towards him and not knowing if he's a wanted man or not, you know, he tucks up the collar and walks away. Kind of a some things never change. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's um, it's interesting how the show stayed the same throughout, progressed throughout, and there was the one time where they had to change headquarters uh, for the terrorists, and they did, and they showed how that happened. And there's another time where suddenly they're in this other house. But because they showed us the first one, it's like, okay, I can buy the second. Yeah. So actually, they showed even the, f- the first house they had to leave. When they're leaving uh, at one point, and in the freezer, they, they have to go shut off some the, the realtor or the homeowner's uh, cell phone. Yeah. Well, and uh, when they used Kellogg as a distraction to uh, vacate a house, and uh, Travis gets in the doghouse with Kagami which is kind of interesting, making you wonder just how did some very military and militant leadership of Liberate get aligned with a guy who believes that the mind is the best weapon and the heart and soul of what we're after. Let's talk about that for a moment, because Kagami is very much, like you said, the strategist, the thinker and stuff. He needed some militant people. He got them. Travis being the, the leader of the group before Kagami got back there. Kellogg being essentially the con man and the not believer of the group. So wanting to kind of just enjoy the, the present day. But when Travis basically uh, leaves Kellogg, who'd been implanted with a tracker so Kira could follow him, leaves him sitting on a bomb and Kira kind of saves his life at that point. He, Travis then gets in the doghouse with Kagami. You don't raise arms against somebody else within our group. It's just not done. But then at the end of the season, uh, Alexa Doig's character, Sonya, is cut a gun to Travis's head saying, basically, you know, Kagami wasn't too happy with you. She's giving him an ultimatum. Now, the scene cut there is poorly done, in my opinion. I think it was intentionally done because it's unclear if it's a gunshot or a door shot. Yes. And I think we were meant to assume it was a gunshot, whereas I don't think it was. That's my thinking, too. It's basically, I'm telling you bad news, I'm going to hold a gun to your head just in case you don't like it. But let's come to an agreement, because of course Travis and, and Sonya were, were lovers. Yeah, uh, it's, it's more of the, are they messing with the audience's mind? And I've asked John a few times, you know, do you think older Alec was being selfish when he sent Kira back in time. Do you think he was being, I don't want to say malicious, but he knows she has a husband and a son she loves dearly. I mean, some of the flashbacks slash forward scenes make you wonder about the quality of her marriage. And it seems to be a mostly very good marriage, but there are enough rocks in it that you kind of wonder. So... Was was he being purely selfish, or does he genuinely believe she is the one protector who can make the right calls in the right moments, like recognizing murder is wrong, murder is always wrong, but if you have the power, quite literally power, to save hundreds, thousands, millions of lives to solve the energy crisis globally, Yeah. then maybe if I don't even know if I should be here letting you go when other police weren't going to find out you committed a murder is the right thing to do. Well, again, letting a murderer go because of what history dictates, yet at the end of the season, history dictates there's going to be this bomb in this plaza taking a building down, 
and she tries to stop it. Because she's always out to save lives. But it comes down to what was mentioned uh, earlier in an episode, I think the same one with the, the murderer, where young Alec is asking, you know, aren't you kind of playing God here? And she's like, well, the decisions I make impact millions. And really, that was, that was the wrong response. The choices she makes impacts the planet yes. for the next 65 years and potentially after. And what's, what's fascinating is Alec is in a dilemma of just kind of having to go with the, the punches as a young kid with this person from the future who kind of knows things and is planning things out or, or reacting accordingly to advanced knowledge. And there is going to come a point where that presumably flips to where older Alec is potentially beholden to history and trying to make sure certain things happen. Does Kira meet the husband? Do they have the kid? Do these things pan out and stuff? Well, and I've asked John, when do you think the husband started working for Alec's company, Sad Tech? And at one point, the husband says, I wanted to tell you something, but I knew it would upset you, and I couldn't risk telling you because I was afraid you wouldn't marry me, and I couldn't risk losing you. Well, and that was the affair he was talking about. And the question is, did that affair happen because he loved her, but has to marry Kira because of what older Alec has kind of set in motion? Is, In other words, is her husband of the future, who she loves, a pawn in this? Mm-hmm. And it, again, it, it really kind of boggles the mind and opens up a lot of really fun, both discussion points and things to speculate on. And to me, any story that can do that versus one where I'm done, yeah, I liked it and that's it. You know, it's, just, it's a different level of entertainment. It is. And the fact that when I rewatch the episodes, I see more. And I find more depth to it than I realized was there. And the first time I realized there was a lot of depth there. And I find it entertaining and just nice of the writers to have thrown in an H.G. Wells reference, to have thrown in a reference to a Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court, and a few things like that. You know, they're just... Well, to toss it in, but do it in a way that doesn't just slam you over the head with it, because the H.G. Wells reference was one of those that I get it when they pointed it out, but they'd mentioned the name a half dozen times, and it didn't slam me in the face. Exactly. And they're doing a lot of just beautiful stuff. And, and with a Connecticut Yankee, they cut it off halfway through because people were glaring at him. But again, the referencing of the time travel stuff, talk about, you know, Shakespeare and stuff, there's a sense of... These people from the future know history, but there's also discussions they have that make it clear that the corporations had heavily edited history so they could redo some of the same stuff, like the banking collapse and the CEOs getting bonuses and stuff, that we've actually seen in the present day. Yes. It's a show well worth watching, and again, like you said, the rewatchability of it, I think, is what, again, kicks it to a higher level than a lot of shows. Because there are a lot of shows I've just really enjoyed and stuff, but we're, we're well done, very entertaining. Again, Star Trek Next Generation is a good example of that. But you go back and you watch them, and it's like, you know, there's not another level of depth to pull out of it. It's, it's good, but it is what it is. Whereas, particularly with the time travel story, you've got more potential of this, of cause and effect almost being reversed, and what you see later making you rethink what you saw earlier. That was something Babylon 5 did often. Uh, which is part of why I thought that was a brilliant show, too. Well, and this is a show where, like I keep saying, you know, staring at the screen can be so important. There are some TV shows 
that while I'm working in my office, since I work from home a lot of the time, I can have the television going on the other side of the room and I feel like I'm listening to a radio show and I'm not missing anything. Whereas some of the scenes where her suit is broken, young Alec is trying to fix it, and as he's looking at the suit with his monitors behind him, his image shows up there because the suit's monitoring him. He looks back, it's gone. If you're not paying attention, not watching the show, you miss that level entirely. Yes, yes. Well, and there are a lot of times on the monitors when images of her little boy show up. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, you know, is that because she's thinking about the little boy? And once or twice, Alec has said, you know, we haven't talked about your family recently. You haven't mentioned your son recently, knowing she's trying not to dwell on what she's lost. But simultaneously reminding new viewers, oh wait, she has a son, she has all of this. Again, economy of writing. They do a lot of those subtle reminders, greeting when he goes into breakfast, hi mom, hi step bro, mm -hmm. instead of just saying bro or addressing him by name. Just little things that if you've missed episodes, yes, you're going to miss depth, but you can still follow the bulk of it. Well, it goes towards accessible writing. You know, and along those lines, the show actually has an opening sequence that basically recaps the premise. I think that the opening sequence in season one could be a commercial for the show and give you the whole premise in a nutshell and do an awesome job. Yeah, yeah. And why shouldn't every opening sequence to a degree be that way? You know, it reminds me of the old Dookie Hauser opening sequence that, boom, you now know what you're about to watch. And I loved it. Actually reminds me more of the uh, Quantum Leap opening. In terms of stating the information, Doogie Hauser was more of a, you had to read it on the newspaper articles and everything, enough, but it enough. was all there. Yeah. So again, the new season's going to start up a couple of days from now. June 7th. And if you haven't seen season one, I hope people record it. If you have seen season one, I would say record it and marathon it because watching them back to back, you see all those little details and breadcrumbs just stack right up. And it's phenomenal to see the thought and the care they put into it and have that feeling they planned this whole arc out in advance. And I have high hopes that whatever the arc is for two, I don't dare speculate because they opened the door to so many possibilities. Whatever the arc is, I hope they put the same amount of planning into, you know, we're going to start the season here, we're going to go to here, we're going to end here, yeah. and that we get something as satisfying as this was. Again, I think they, they treat the, the viewers with respect, and this is definitely premeditated storytelling. It's not something where they're just knocking out another episode. Over the course of the first season, they very clearly had a plan, and they followed through on it, I think, wonderfully. Uh, if they do, I would do that on a season-by-season -season basis myself. I think they've got a bigger arc going, but really as long as uh, the creator is as, as passionate and involved as he has been over the first season, this thing could go on for quite some time, and I'm definitely looking forward to, to following it as it continues. Me too. It's, it's probably some of the best writing I'm seeing on TV right now. I would agree with that. I think there are a couple other shows, uh, Scandal being one of them that I think is brilliantly written, uh, but it's doing a different type of story. It doesn't have the complexities of the time travel and stuff, but it's got the political intrigue. And Definitely. So forth. I like shows that, uh, that, again, treat viewers as intelligent beings 
not just, well, we're going to flash some images, have a gunfight, a car chase, and they catch the bad guy. Well, and what you were saying with a mentalist earlier, I've gotten to where I actually don't like the Red John episodes on that one, because while that was part of the initial premise, they're now feeling like forced episodes that it almost feels like they're obliged to do, whereas it felt like Red John established the character and established why the group came together. But now I just like the group solving cases. I like their dynamic. I like what they do. It's interesting, though, because with The Mentalist, you've got the arc episodes, the non-arc. The arc has gotten almost, like you said, a little force, but then some of the non-arc almost feels like filler, and it's almost a lose-lose. Whereas, because Continuum hasn't made that, that, uh, that split, all of the episodes matter. All of them are integral to the stories. All of them, it, well, again, all of them, quote-unquote, matter. And I think having that sense of consequence, having that sense of importance, having that sense of relevance to the viewer is what makes any story really click on all, any continued narrative have all the parts really click. Because one of the, the complaints I hear sometimes about comics, one of the complaints I sometimes have about comics, is, well, this was a filler issue, it didn't really matter. It was disconnected from the rest. Or they told a trade paperback arc equivalent, stop, and you get a clean start on the next one. You know, whereas here, I don't, obviously I haven't seen the first episode of the second season. They could change things up quite a bit, have a new base, a new status quo for characters. I'm suspecting that won't really be the case for the most part. Obviously there will be evolution of the characters and their status quos, but not a clean break, fresh start. That, that makes it seem like, well, I could have just skipped what had gone before and started here. Yeah. Well, and one of the things I noticed about the characters that I liked, because it really set Kellogg apart, and Kira's in the same boat to a degree. Most of the Liberate members, they were Liberate in the future, they're Liberate now. They are effectively unchanged well, personalities. Well, but personality and goal-wise, mm -hmm. they are who they are. All the present cops, they are who they are. But Kira was a CPS officer who at one point she sees that food was being withheld and she questions, but why is this happening? And they say, oh, it's not your place to ask. And she was frustrated and she wanted things to be better. And Kellogg is someone who was lumped in with Liberate, but says, I'm a guy with a bad future who suddenly has a clean slate. Yeah. And he really seems to be taking advantage of that clean slate and being a better person. Well, I'm, I'm not so sure about the being a better person. I'm thinking he's got a long-term game plan here that is definitely not part of Liberate's, but... He's, I think he's playing both Liberate as much as he can, Kira where he has to, and that at some point he's going to be the, the, I don't want to say the big bad for a season or something, but much more of a, 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 much more of a player. He's a current red herring and untapped potential. He's used right now as the go-between between Kira and, and Liberate and stuff. I think there's going to come a point where Liberate is still out there, but in addition to them being a threat, Kellogg is mm. going to be a threat. Either he'll run for office or he'll get a, a tech company going or something where you can't just ignore him anymore. And again, I don't know what his game plan is, but I'm almost wondering if the episode in which we saw his grandmother and all of that was a con job 
to to remove that threat from him. Because yeah. at one point, uh, Kagami and the others basically are targeting Kira's ancestor, uh, ancestors, yeah, to, to see if she would not be born if they killed them or whatever. And kind of uh, to test that theory, Travis, in an exchange and stuff, uh, when they... It basically, it was a great episode. They they pulled a couple of uh, fast ones on people. It, it worked well. Uh, but the girl who Kellogg claimed was going or was treating as if she was going to be his grandmother, fixing up the house, uh, getting it off the auction block, that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. under the guise of making his family better or whatever, it could have just been a con job, knowing that that was a risk. Yeah. Because he thinks a couple of steps ahead. As much as Kagami is a strategist, so is Kellogg. Well, and Kellogg says he tried to convince the judge that he wasn't part of Liberate. But Kagami is the one who kept bringing Kellogg back into the fold, which makes me think Kagami and older Alec, for some reason, want Kellogg in the execution chamber. I, I think it's more because of his future than of his past. I just don't know yet. Yeah. It's interesting. It, like we keep saying, the show brings up so many questions, so much potential. There's so much to wonder about, so much to see, and it makes you want to go back and review the Kellogg episodes and plots and figure out why did Kellogg go to lengths to prove himself to Kira to try to earn her trust yeah. and further his relationship with her. What is he after from her? And she does. She keeps saying, I don't trust him. I know he'll turn on me at any moment. Well, what's interesting is Kagami had a plan, uh, older Alec had a plan, Kellogg, I think, has a plan. Kira's just trying to get through the day, so I don't think she really has a big plan yet. Her only goal is to go home to her husband and son, and she seems to be becoming increasingly convinced that's not going to happen. So she's got goals, but not plans. We've got three distinct characters, at least two blatantly have plans. What I find interesting is in uh, the uh, reimagined Battlestar Galactica, throughout the entire thing, we were told the Cylons are back and they have a plan. And they, frankly, from my perspective, they never did. They did a two-hour movie on the plan, and I'm like, really, that's it? Whereas I've got the faith in this writing team that not that everything will be all, you know, executed perfectly, but that these characters actually do have a plan, that older Alec had a plan, Kagami and older uh, Julian had a counter plan. Older Alec wrote younger Alec a letter with a password chosen such that once you see what the password is, you say, hey, that even implies he knew when, or at least after when, it would be open. He timed the delivery. And I would really like to know what's in that letter. And if you want to read the manifesto for Liberate, go to liber8.com, and it's up there. And when I was Googling the other day on a Continuum and Liberate, trying to see, because I knew Showcase had put it up last year and see if it was still up there, I found a really interesting blog post by someone saying, you know, nothing on the Liberate website says this is a marketing promotion for a TV show in North America. So imagine if you're someone anywhere in the world and you just stumble on this website and you see this manifesto. There are countries in which saying these things is probably illegal. Doing these things certainly is. Well, the whole concept of a TV show, which is, is of course, corporate-sponsored, 
having a website out there inciting you know violence against corporations which they could then be the recipient of kind of that violence or whatever there's a certain irony there yeah it's a bizarre concept in several ways yeah anyways it's a it's a good show i think it's well worth watching uh we wanted to get this episode out there just in preparation for that second season i'm very glad we marathoned the first season again fun show great cast excellent writing and i think a lot of people may not have caught this yet i think it's flown under the radar a bit uh but is well worth checking out i second all of the above anything else is that pretty much it i think that's it cool the show notes and form for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.